The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stone Man's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage. I'm Paul J. Laverty, broadcasting from Jaja Wurrung Country on Castlemaine's 94.9 Main FM and across Australia on the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stoneman's Bookroom. Today on the show is part two of uh, Northern Books Books at the Brewery session where Brian Walters uh, the author is in conversation with Helen Simon, discussing his novel, Treason. Uh, we played part one last week. Uh, you can go back on the podcast and listen to that if you have missed it. This is part two, and a big thank you to Andrew Skioch for recording this. Uh, and without further ado, we'll go straight into it. One of the... Um, well, there are a lot of interesting characters in your book. I mean, they're all... They're not made-up characters, and one of the things that makes them interesting is that they were real. Um, one of the, the people I found most interesting, partly because, mostly because he was such a dramatic contrast with von Stauffenberg was Fromm. Mm. Can you tell us about him? So Colonel General Friedrich Fromm, we don't have the rank of Colonel General, but um, Oberst General or General Oberst is, is a German rank just below Field Marshal. And Fromm was a career officer, overweight, senior, um, <laughs> and uh, he was a weather vane. He was happy to support the coup once it had succeeded. Um, but in the meantime, he wasn't prepared to do anything about it. He knew that Stauffenberg was planning a coup, at one stage, he, um, after a phone call to Field Marshal Keitel, he, he said to Stauffenberg, who was his chief of staff, when you have your putsch, make sure you put Keitel up against a wall. So he knew what was going on. But once, when the coup happened, he wasn't going to commit himself until he knew that Hitler was dead. And when he couldn't get confirmation of that, he just sat on the fence. Now, the fence is a dangerous place to sit. And he was, he was arrested. He was by, by um, Stauffenberg and others. Uh, he was held. Um, and then when the coup unravelled, he came out and ordered the summary execution of Stauffenberg and the other key officers. Why did he order that? Because they knew that he knew and they were able to give evidence against him. So they were shot in the courtyard, but the Gestapo weren't fooled for a moment and Fromm was instantly removed as, chief, uh, as commander of the Home Army and he was put on trial for cowardice. They were very careful politically not to charge him with treason because he was the commander of the Home Army and that wouldn't look good. But cowardice they could deal with and he was, he was shot by firing squad himself. 
Well, thank you. One of the parts of the book that's um, really interesting is the back part, which um, having sort of followed through the story, there are, there's a great deal of um, summary at, in the back part of the book of um, a lot of the characters who were involved, not quite as directly, and some of the incidents, which are direct incidents but had a bearing on how people behaved and what, and in some ways how the war proceeded. Why did you include all that? Well, I think it's important that there's a spinal um, narrative that people can follow clearly and see how it happened. So, on the 21st of March 1943, General Gerstorf was appointed to show Hitler around a, a display of captured weapons in Berlin. And there are photos of this, and the photos show Gerstorf with Hitler. And he um, had a timer in his pocket attached to a hand grenade. And he set the timer off, and he intended to uh, um, stand next to Hitler as it blew up. So he was a suicide bomber, if you like. Now, General Gerstorf wasn't successful because Hitler suddenly went out of the building and Gerstorf wasn't allowed to follow. So he had to race to the toilet, pull this thing out of his pocket and disarm it, which he was able to do. So that's interesting. And he's a very interesting character, Gerstorf, but I can't put all of that in. So he is the person who discovered the Katyn massacre site in Poland a month later. Um, and he was the person who managed to extract German troops from the Falaise pocket in Normandy. Very interesting man, fascinating man, but and a member of the resistance. So, but you get that in the back in the story about him. And then there's the Venlo incident. So, in 1939, after the war had started, Holland was neutral. The Netherlands were neutral. The British had agents in the Netherlands and they received approaches from people who claimed to be part of the German resistance. They didn't believe it, but by this time Chamberlain did. He was the Prime Minister at the time and he ordered them to meet with these representatives of the German resistance. So they went to a cafe in Venlo, which is right on the border with Germany, but within the Netherlands, and an SS armed squad raced across the border, kidnapped them, and took them into Germany. And uh, one of these agents, Richard Stevens, had a list of all British agents in his pocket. And so that was the end. They had to really start their whole um, uh, undercover operations in Europe again. And so they were very reluctant to meet with representatives of the real resistance um, from then on. So that was a critical event which is touched on in the um, narrative but given full detail in the, in the back of the book. Uh, one of the things that struck me from time to time reading the book was um, that von Stauffenberg was um, German aristocracy 
and quite a number of the other people involved in the resistance were as well. And from time to time, um, he and other people made comments about, you know, the old Germany or that, that, that there, there was a sense that what wanted to be restored was the, the, a noble Germany that made me wonder whether um, we had a bunch of people who really wanted the Kaiser back. Is that accurate? So, um, when Hitler invaded Russia, he called the uh, operation Operation Barbarossa. And Barbarossa was, well, which means Redbeard, was Friedrich Barbarossa, the Hohenstaufen Emperor of Europe in the 12th and 13th centuries. The Hohenstaufens ruled Europe. <clears throat> Stauffenberg was a descendant of Barbarossa. And he um, was very aware of his lineage. So that was important to him. But he had no uh, desire to have, and nor did most of the resistance, to have a, um, a return to the monarchy. Um, there were a few people who did, but they were a minority. In fact, Stauffenberg was a very, a very close friend of Julius Leber, who was the leader of the Social Democrats in Germany. Of course, a banned organisation, as all political parties other than the Nazi party were. And he um, uh, wanted Leber to be Chancellor of Germany, but of course Leber said, no, we don't want, the Social Democrats don't want to take over the government. Um, all we're doing is, is surrendering to the Allies. We took over the government in 1918 and surrendered to the Allies then, and we've, we've borne the weight of that ever since, and we're not doing it again. Um, but the proposed uh, um, head of state was in fact Ludwig Beck, who was not an aristocrat, who was the, uh, ch the chief of staff of the German army, who'd resigned in 1938, and the proposed chancellor after um, Leber would not do it was Karl Gödeler, who was also not an aristocrat. He had been the mayor of Leipzig and he had resigned as mayor when the Nazis removed the statue of Felix Mendelssohn from the town square, Mendelssohn being Jewish. And he'd been a prominent figure in Germany, Karl Gödeler, he'd been the Prices Commissioner and so on, worked closely with Hjalmar Schacht and other such people. But the makeup of the German resistance was not confined to aristocrats at all. There certainly were a number of them um, who felt that their country was being trashed, but um, there were many others, social democrats, communists, church leaders, um, and others. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM, the Community Radio Network, and sponsored by Stone Man's Bookworm, with myself as your host, Paul J. Laverty. And now we return to Brian Walters, his Books at the Brewery session, discussing his novel, Treason. Well, as you can see, Brian knows this period of history inside out and upside down, and... Uh, I could keep asking him questions all night and I promise you there will be 
one engaging story after another, but you may well have some questions. Um, so perhaps I can turn it over to the room via Kristen um, and uh, we can have your questions. I've got some here ready to go, so thank you for submitting your questions and please do feel free to, to um, keep sending them through. Question, Brian, why, why write this book now? Are you seeing parallels with the likes of Trump and Bolsonaro in terms of the need to eradicate dangerous dictators? And are you trying to draw attention to the morals we need to exercise now? Um, so, I've, I've felt the example of Klaus von Stauffenberg for many years as, as a very powerful example. We don't face Hitler today we do have climate change. We do have a whole lot of other existential threats, um, nuclear weapons and the like. It's hard to draw an exact parallel, so I wouldn't necessarily say that Trump or Bolsonaro is, should be equated with Hitler, even Putin. Um, but the idea that our loyalties should be um, blindly to the powers that be, I think is something that should be questioned. When we have a, in our own country, for example, and this is very minor compared to what people were dealing with in Nazi Germany, we've got laws now that, that send people to jail for um, protesting about the climate. Uh, it's extraordinary. Now, I'm not okay with that. I think that's very seriously wrong. But I would be careful about drawing too close a parallel <laughs> between that and what people were dealing with in 1939. But I think the example of people being prepared to think of what's good for their country and being prepared to go all out uh, to help perhaps not just their country but the world is one that's well worth following. Did Klaus von Stauffenberg come to his role with a strong political, religious, philosophical view or was he reacting to the circumstances? Um, it's, it's hard to be exactly clear. Um, so Stauffenberg was a Catholic. Um, he uh, was a poet. Um, he was, the, he was a cellist. Um, he'd considered, in fact, a, a solo career as a cellist. He was the protege of Stefan Georga, who was one of the leading German poets of the 20th century. Um, when I was in Berlin, I went to St Anne's Church in Dahlem and I went there for a number of reasons. It was the church of Martin Niemöller, who is the person who said, first they came for the socialists, and I was not a socialist, so I said nothing. Then they came for the communists, and I was not a communist, and I said nothing. Then they came for the Jews, and I was not a Jew, so I said nothing. Then they came for me, 
and there was no one left to speak for me. As at 1944, Niemöller had been in concentration camps for seven years, and, but his church was still a centre of the resistance, and Stauffenberg's aide, Werner von Haften, attended that church. The night before the bomb plot, and it's a, it's a Protestant church, the night before the bomb plot, Klaus von Stauffenberg, a Catholic, went to that church and spent half an hour inside. And why that was, you can speculate, but clearly he was looking for some spiritual inspiration for what he was about to do. There have been a number of books which have been written about the attempt to assassinate Hitler. What makes your book different from theirs and stand out? And a related question, why did you decide to write treason? How did you become interested? So the first part is there have been a number of books and um, the books fall into a, f a few groups. There are very detailed German histories which are, I have read them all. <laughs> and they are just so tediously complex um, that you can't read them readily. Then there's a lot of um, books written in English, or a few books anyway written in English, which, which are a racier read, but full of inaccuracies. So for example, you'll read that the conference was changed from a concrete bunker to a wooden bunkhouse. That's not true at all. That didn't happen. Uh, you'll read a whole lot of things like that. Um, and so I wanted to get it accurate. And the third group of books, which I do recommend, are books by people who had some role, who survived the war and were able to, to write about it. Um, and or in some cases didn't survive the war. So for example, Ulrich von Hassel, who was the German ambassador to Italy up until just before the Second World War. Incredibly well connected, really interesting person, kept a detailed diary. He was executed after the July plot. But his diary is a fabulous read. He kept it hidden by burying it in his garden. And one of the things I have included in the book, in his diary, he, as a way of gauging the public attitude to the regime, kept all the Nazi jokes he ever heard. <laughs> and, and, and I've included them in the book. They're fabulous. You know? <laughs> They're just ordinary people talking about how the regime was, just in jokes. And, and um, he's gauging the public response to the attitude. So, and I, asking how I came to write about this, um, I first read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and I was interested in his story, but then as I came to understand more of what was happening, the outstanding personality was Klaus von Stauffenberg and I found him quite magnetic and that's why I I um, uh, put in the time to research this book. Can I ask on the, on the question of research then, Brian? Um, 
It, it's an incredibly, um, you know, uh, informative and research. Oh, clearly, there's been a lot of research done. How long does something like this So I started work on this about 20 years ago. Um, the, the, um, a lot of the research nowadays can be done online. So the archives, in, surprisingly, one of the really interesting places for research was the Polish archives. Um, they had a lot of interesting material. There's the German archives, but also the British and American archives were really good. Um, and then going there, I mean, the house that Stauffenberg lived in in Berlin is still there. And it's pretty much unchanged. So and no one goes there. It's not a tourist thing or anything, but I did, and I, I found it fascinating. There was a group called the, the Kreisau Circle, um, a group of conspirators. The house where they used to meet is still there. So I was able to go there and see that house and so on. And this was your first trip overseas, was to go... Not that particular trip, but to, your first trip was to go the to Germany. The first time I went overseas was, in fact, to Germany, yeah. But that was a long time. It was 75. So um, at that stage, there were plenty of people talking about the war. Um, I went to... One of the places I went to was Munich. And I went to a tourist thing with, with German um, friends. I went to a tourist thing, which was, I mean, nowadays... This would be old hat, but it was, it was a darkened room with screens dropping out with different images and so on. And it started off with Hitler addressing the Nuremberg rally. And uh, my, my German friends were very embarrassed. And, and they said to me, the Hitler time, the Hitler time, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> but it was... Um, very uh, formative. My, my father was in Nazi Germany in 1939 and only just he was English and he only just escaped. Um, many people you referred to had resigned in protest. If they had stayed, could they have helped or hindered the resistance? So, um, well, the, the person I've referred to is Ludwig Beck, who was the chief of staff of the German army. He was revered within the uh, officer corps and he was outraged at the idea of invading Czechoslovakia and he resigned in protest. But he was, he was an army man. Now remember, there was a strict separation, at least nominally, between the army and politics. Soldiers weren't allowed to vote in Germany. Um, they were not allowed to be involved in politics. And Beck had a kind of political naivety which seems extraordinary because when he sent in his letter of resignation, Hitler asked him for, for foreign policy reasons to keep it secret for the time being and Beck agreed. And so no one knew that he'd resigned in protest until months later. And Beck would have been much better to stay in, in the army at that time. Brian, you mentioned that Staffenberg's children were a motivator in the attempted assassination of Hitler. 
What was the fallout on them after their father's death and the plot was exposed? So um, the four children were separated from their mother within two days and they were sent to orphanages. Their names were changed. Um, the, uh, then the word came that they had been sent to Buchenwald. Um, but the railway station uh, from which they were to depart was bombed and they couldn't make the journey. Um, Stauffenberg's aunt uh, was the head of the Red Cross in Germany and after the war had ended she found the children just before the Russians took over that sector and the day before and got them out um, which was not easy to do because their names had been changed but she was able to do it. Um, Nina, his wife, gave birth in January 1945 to the fifth child. Um, and um, I've spoken to um, the children and his daughter said, when we were growing up, we never had to ask our parents, why didn't you do something? an enormous legacy to leave. Um, his eldest son, Berthold, who was 10 when his father died, uh, is a retired Major General of the, at that stage, West German Army. Speaks flawless English and um, was very unhappy about um, Tom Cruise playing his father. <laughs> in the film and I asked him why and he said oh well he said he's a Scientologist which is a crime in Germany it's banned and he said yes I said my father was a very tall man <laughs> you are listening to The Quiet Garage and there we had Part two, the final part of Brian Walters discussing his new book, Treason, at Northern Books Books at the Brewery event in Castlemaine. And that book is available from Northern Books, Stoneman's Book Room, or at his website, www.brianwaltersauthor.com. And that is all we have time for today on the show. We're sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. And you can hear me, Paul J. Laverty, on 94.9 Main FM the Community Radio Network, and all other episodes are available on Spotify and all good podcast platforms. Until next time, keep reading.